Yep. I don't mind. I don't mind whatever. Okay, so, um, well, I'll just, for my own sake, um, yeah. So, <laughs> this feels, this feels The moment like, you decide. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, uh, I don't know what yeah. I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> Always edit. <laughs> so, this feels terribly awkward, but, uh, all right, so the plan here is to host a podcast. Uh, we're calling this the History of Christian, no, wait, A History of Christian Theology. Um, yes. and, uh. I tried to come up with more clever titles, but supposedly this is the best way uh, to get people to actually click on it, so we'll see. Hello and welcome to A History of Christian Theology. My name is Chad Kim. With me this week is Tom Velasco and Trevor Adams, as usual. This week we'll be discussing Athenagoras, who is a second century kind of apologist for Christianity, much like Justin Martyr. We will be discussing his work, A Plea for Christians, which is also addressed to the Emperor Marcus Aurelius, much like the uh, other letters of Justin Martyr, which we've already read. Uh, the difference being Athenagoras is from the east, um, probably somewhere near Alexandria. He is, by our judgments and many judgments, more eloquent and more philosophically grounded than Justin Martyr. However, he no longer he does not speak specifically about the resurrection, so he has been left to obscurity primarily in the Christian tradition. He is not mentioned by Eusebius, um, and basically his contribution is that he is one of the earliest people to really struggle uh, with the Trinity and and writes this eloquent defense of Christianity. Please check out our Facebook page at facebook.com slash a history of Christian theology. We'd love to hear from you. Um, all right. So we'll, we'll hop into the Athenagoras. The one part that I would have uh, probably also say in the introduction, but um, I mean, Athenagoras is mentioned two times and not at all by Eusebius of Caesarea. I mean, and, you know, we've talked about Eusebius of Caesarea like sort of in passing in several occasions, he's kind of known as the first Christian historian. He's writing after uh, Constantine, sort of uh, the Edict of Nantes and the declaration that Christianity is legal. Um, and so Edict of Milan. Milan, sorry. Yeah, you're That's right. Okay. Sorry. Um, and um, and uh, after the Edict of Milan, and he's sort of giving a, a recounting of what's happened up to uh, the time and so he actually, I mean, he quotes pretty much, you know, most writers we know, but skips Athenagoras, um, who is writing a similar type of plea to Justin Martyr, except for he calls his a plea rather than apology. Uh, and uh, yeah, so he even has slightly different language for it, but also addressed to the emperors. And then, I mean, as far as I can tell, I mean, we could, this may be a better question to sum up. But I mean, just the overall character and tenor of the letter are, to me, is much more philosophical, much more logical, much more, um, it follows step by step in a more clear and direct manner um, than Justin does. And so, I mean, I, I mean, just my overall impression was this is a more persuasive argument. I think more than that, I mean, I think this is far and away the best thing we've read so far. Like, if, if we have listeners out there who are wrestling with the idea of whether or not they want to read the stuff that we're talking about, please take this as a recommendation. Read Athenagoras, his plea, uh, his plea, because it is, I think it's fantastic. Um, it's not just that the arguments are more persuasive and that they follow more logically. I mean, he hits on so many things that are 
super interesting. Like he puts forward a, a, a theory of matter, like an ato- not an atomic theory necessarily, but like a theory of what matter is that isn't too far off from what the contemporary you know understanding is. Um, he just hits on so many things that if you read it, you're going to go, oh, this guy, this guy totally knows what he's getting. And he's also not as um, uh, what's mean spirited, I think, as you would find with Justin. Like he's a lot more uh, rational and, and he's approaching it more intellectually. He, he, he over and over again asserts that he respects Marcus Aurelius, the emperor, his, his intelligence and his understanding and that, if Marcus Aurelius only understood what we really believed, he clearly would be not necessarily a Christian, but he would stop persecuting, which is ultimately Athenagoras' goal. He wants to persuade the emperor and the Roman Empire to stop persecuting Christians. Yeah, it reminded me of uh, something uh, Caleb brought up when he was on for the uh, Justin Martyr's apology. He was. I remember one point he made was something about... Uh, it doesn't seem like, you know, maybe this was actually meant to be read by the emperor. And part of his case was he's just rude to the to the <laughs> emperor. And, you know, yeah. it's like, and when you read this, this is what made, that was the very first thought I had. I was like, well, this definitely seems like it was supposed to be meant to be read by the emperor. Because, yeah, he actually seems to be like, Marcus really is like kind of fan. He's And he calls him the great philosopher all the time. Well, I guess he calls both emperors smart. Uh, but he, he definitely seems to have he, – he obviously has Marcus Aurelius in mind because yeah. I think we have Marcus Aurelius in mind when we, we think of the actual philosopher emperor. Yeah. But, well, and not only that, but Commodus, the other emperor, who is Marcus Aurelius' son, that guy's a notorious nincompoop. I mean, he's yeah. clearly just including him out of a sense of respect. Exactly. I mean, yeah. Commodus had not one philosophical bone in his body. Yeah, uh, yeah obviously, but it was – but anyway, I just thought, well, yeah, this was this is a legit plea, and he does think that, hey, Marcus, you're smart, and if you knew what we believed, and you just used, you know, basically your good sense and uh, kind of your sense of morality as well, you would come to realize this is messed up. And yeah, no. yeah. The one thing I mean, Tom actually brought this up. You said he seems to have a high view of the emperor. He either has such a high view of the emperor or, I mean, I don't think this is what he's doing, but it at least crossed my mind. I was like, is he almost being pejorative? But then the overall character is not as pejorative as Justin is. So I actually think, like he says here, you, however, yourselves, you have a clear knowledge of this since you're well instructed in philosophy and learning. I mean, like, I think he, I, I don't know I don't know why it has to be sarcastic, um, which was at least crossed my mind. It was just so kind in a way, or at least so uh, uh, you know um, respectful <laughs> uh, that I thought. Yeah, there's a part where he brings up Aristotle and goes, "Well, I'm not even going to really go into the details about this because you already know, and just sort of you know what I'm talking about." Yeah, and it's like. Wow. So, I mean, if he's willing to do that, he's willing to assume that. Yeah, which, by the way, kind of picking up off of that, uh, Athenagoras is incredibly well-read in terms of pagan literature. Like, nobody that we've read up until this point has made references to pagan literature aside from in a very kind of um, uh, general way. Uh, well, Martin, or, well, Justin Martyr, he quoted him, right? Not like this. I mean, th- here you have extensive quotes short i mean 
I don't know. I mean, there were quotes. Yes, there have been quotes in a lot of things we've read, but not like this, not so yeah. comprehensive, not really delving into different ideas of different philosophers. Um, this is pretty pretty extensive. I should um, add just a reminder for – well, I don't know if it's a reminder. It's I guess it's a, a new thing as well. But he is addressing, again, the exact same accusations that are constantly being brought against Christians. So for our listeners, when you listen to this – he is giving it, or when you read this work, he is giving a defense of Christianity, but it is in the exact same contents as Chad content, sorry, context, as Chad pointed out a moment ago, that he's defending Christians literally. Like Christians are being arrested, they're being put on trial, they're having property confiscated, they're taking uh, lashings, they're being killed because of their Christianity. And he's addressing three accusations brought against them. The first is that they are atheists, which was illegal. So you can't, if you're listening to this, think of him as defending Christianity against atheists. He is defending it to people who believe in a god or gods um, who think that actually you should be put to death for being an atheist. So first, he's addressing the issue of them being accused of being atheists, that is Christians. Secondly, he's addressing the charge that Christians are engaging in wild sexual liaisons with family members, uh, because that was one of the accusations that in church meetings they would they would have love uh, feasts with their brothers and sisters. Yeah, they, which, had, they had Oedipus parties, or whatever yeah, he calls thing. it an, exactly. He calls yeah. it an Oedipal party. Uh, yeah. And then the third thing is that they ate human flesh, which was clearly related to their belief in the Lord's presence. So these are the three accusations that he's addressing. Yeah, he uh, well, and he uses the word Thiestian feast, um, and, and so uh, you know our our uh, listeners who are familiar with Greek mythology will remember Thiestes, uh, who was ultimately fed his own sons. Isn't that right, Tom? Yes, uh, to his to the and, gods. Thiestes, yeah, fed fed this fed his children to the gods. Right, and then he was put in Tartarus for that was his punishment, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah. yeah I, and I, so. <laughs> I didn't know what it was. Well, and and his descendant Atreus is one of his descendants from the uh, Agamemnon and from the uh, the Oresteia, I think, right? Yes. Uh, so anyway, so those are the ones that he draws. He he spends the most time uh, dealing with the issue of of whether or not they're atheists. So in this way, he's similar to Justin um, trying to handle this question of are they atheists. Um, but but he goes about it in a different way. Um, he doesn't just mock them for believing in uh, physical um, idols. Uh, he says, I like this line from chapter 4, but since our doctrine acknowledges one God, the maker of this universe, who is himself uncreated, for that which it does not come to be, but that which is not, but has made all things by the Logos, which is from him, we are treated unreasonably in both respects, and that we are both defamed and persecuted. So, I mean, one his tact here is to say, you know, we don't actually believe that God is matter. We believe that God is an uncreated form uh, behind matter. Um, and through the Logos, through Jesus Christ, all of this stuff came uh, to be. And so, you know, it's more than just straight mockery, uh, which, you know, or at least uh, through that kind of a rhetorical device that Justin and, uh, and the letter to diogenetus go about it i mean he he makes this clear philosopher's distinction about what is actually being worshipped yeah and in chapter two he actually says look marcus aurelius 
you guys and you Romans, you've been notoriously uh, lenient with people who worship other religions. He goes, I mean, if you grow up, if you come up in Athens or in Egypt or in Syria, and he actually lists gods by name that they worship, that everybody's totally fine with. He says, you're totally lenient to those guys. He says, we believe in a God. And he actually follows a line of argument that tries to show that, that, that Christians actually fall into the line of uh, kind of the philosophical tradition that philosophers like Socrates and Plato and Aristotle believed in a God who was like ours. So he essentially says, look, we kind of like philosophers, which, by the way, Marcus Aurelius prided himself in being a philosopher. It's like he's saying, like you, Marcus Aurelius, because the Stoics also believe in one God. We are like you. We believe in one God. And he goes, it makes no sense for you to persecute us on these grounds. Um, You should instead rejoice just like like you do with everybody else. And, and, and uh, their, you know, the, their commitment to religion, we do worship a God. And then he goes on and says, you hate us only because of our name. It's just the fact that we're called Christians. It has nothing to do with our actual beliefs. And, and with that, he implies, by the way, he doesn't do it very accusatorily. He actually says, if you knew what we believe, then you would know we're with you, basically. I was just going to say, yeah, the parallels he makes to what the philosophers believe about there being one deity and that deity not being made of matter is just, yeah. I mean, it's it's something we've already mentioned a couple times on the podcast because, look, you know, pick the school. Uh, Pythagoreans, they think it's God's like this number. Uh, you know, Plato would say he's this eternal thing that uh, from everything emanates. Aristotle says he's the first mover. And he's like, and you Stokes, you also believe this. And he's like, so what the heck? You know, basically, we essentially believe the same thing here. It's only because of these three insane, like, really gross things that everyone thinks about us do you really even persecute us. And that just isn't true. Yeah. Yeah, which was great because he's trying to create a dialogue with him. He's like, I just want to inform you. It's not a scathing attack. He's not, unlike Justin... He's not thinly veiling what he's saying with like these threats of divine judgment at the end. Right. Um, although, to be fair, he does mention it a bit, but he does it a lot more logically. Like it's a, a theological point rather than a threat. Right. Instead, he's kind of saying, look, we are like you, philosophers. And as philosophers, we have come to this conclusion about who the one true God is. And by the way, he goes further in explaining something that I think a lot of people don't fundamentally understand in chapter 7, he talks about the superiority of the Christian doctrine respecting God, and he contrasts the pagan view with the Christian view in that the pagans identify God or the gods as animating the universe. That is, as identifying with some kind of physical thing, right? So um, you could either have kind of a pantheistic God, which he references, that is, there's the universe and God is like the soul of the universe in a sense. The body is like, or the universe is like his body. Yeah. So in that view, God is in a sense kind of everything. That is a very kind of pagan view from his day. You also, of course, have the the individual deities who are always associated with something like Oceanus is associated with the ocean. Poseidon is associated with the Mediterranean Sea, you know, and, and, Janus is associated with the open door. He, he points out that you, that these gods are in nature, whereas our God, the God that Christians worship, is completely separate from his nature. He's other than nature 
And he actually makes some arguments, which I find kind of interesting against that. Yeah, the, well, which could lead us to the conversation in chapter six, right? Right in that same area, or at least on mine, it's chapter six, um, which is how is it that God functions uh, in in the in its in his threeness and his Trinity? Again, we we're not yet to Tertullian, so we haven't gotten the word Trinity. Uh, but he um, he he brings out. He said. Um, there is one God, the framer of the universe, the uncreated one. Um, he is a God who has framed all things by the Logos, which is Jesus Christ, So all, and, and holds them in being by his spirit. Um, so in a way, he's, he brings each part of the Trinity um, into, into view here um, in terms of the creation. Although it's separate, it's still part of it. It's created through it. Um, and so he is trying to sort of maintain something like a, a, a pre-Trinitarian idea. Now, I, I would wonder in all of this, he doesn't have a strong sense of Christ's incarnation. Um, and so, I mean, that's one bit that's, you know. Or at least maybe, he doesn't uh, talk about it. That yeah. Doesn't, so he it, didn't have it, but he doesn't talk about it hardly at all. That is one thing that is obviously missing from this text the incarnation of Christ, his death and resurrection. Like, he doesn't address it, and I don't know, I, I don't think that that needs to mean that he didn't have a developed view. It's just maybe not in the context of um, what he's, of his point, right, of the point he's trying to make. But you're right, it's left out. Yeah. Uh, and later on, after uh, Nicaea, you'll begin to see, and this may be why Athenagoras, uh, is the better pronunciation, I suspect. Thanks, Tom. Uh, but Athenagoras is probably... I'm not trying to correct you with that. <laughs> uh, it doesn't... I mean, it doesn't really matter. But, um, you know, we'll see a sort of revisionism, as it were, where the, you know, people like Eusebius and Hippolytus is one and a few others, they will go back and reread, you know, these people that we're reading now, and they'll sort of make judgments about whether or not they fit with what is decided uh, at Nicaea, and so what I mean, so what I'm bringing out here, is, you know, is just ways in which he seems consonant. But then the fact of the matter is, if there isn't, you know, he may have a strong view of the incarnation. Um, it just doesn't, it, you know, just doesn't exist anymore. Um, and so yeah. it's it's hard to charge him uh, with not having a view of that. Uh, I, the other text that go for what? it. I didn't want to cut you off. Sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say the other text that we're going to take a look at for a moment anyway is the resurrection of the dead you know later on but in that one he goes through a whole bit about why you should believe in resurrection but again absent uh, um, sort of curiously absent is any notion of actually jesus being yeah. resurrected but yeah i was just gonna add um when i almost when i kind of interrupted you there sorry about that i was just gonna add and i don't know where it's at because <laughs> i left my text back at work so my notes are missing so maybe one of you guys can help me but there is actually a moment, and it's not in this section. It comes later. It might even be in the second work where he says that, the, that, that God and the Logos have the same essence. He actually uses the word or use the word the same essence in my text, which is Trinitarian language that comes out of uh, Nicaea, uh, the Council of Nicaea for people who you know, aren't familiar with that term. It was actually kind of the hinge term. So he actually quotes that. He uses that exact word in this text. So it's a very, very mature and developed view of the unity of the Godhead. 
Chapter 24 in my version from the Antonicene Fathers, he says, um, For as we acknowledge a God and a Son, his Logos, and a Holy Spirit united in essence. That's uh, right. That's it. Okay, which yeah. is certainly usios, which is certainly uh, the you know the being the the this part that that uh, comes out of the Nicene language. Yeah. Uh, and to recontextualize that for our for our audience again, so Athenagoras is writing about 177 A.D. and people constantly accuse the church not accuse that's the wrong term. People describe the history of the church in such a way that they typically or often will basically will say that the doctrine of the Trinity doesn't uh, really come into the narrative of church history until the Council of Nicaea in 325. So, and they'll again often kind of say this is a Constantine thing, that it's because of Constantine that this doctrine develops, but the doctrine is rooted in a much older tradition, in a narrative that, that stretches back, back towards the, you know, founding of the church, the apostles. In chapter 10 as well, he starts to introduce the Trinity. That's and, actually the same. He, our chapters are different. That's the chapter. Oh, that same, okay, yeah. same chapter. Yeah. Well, okay, so 24 in Chad's, 10 in, 10 in mine. No, but, no, the six, when he read six, that first bit. But, okay, so... But in chapter 10, if you're reading on New Advent Catholic Encyclopedia, uh, he, yeah, the, he, the chapter is actually titled, The Christians Worship the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I, I mean, to me, just using some reasoning here alone, if, if we as Christians do believe that God alone can be worshipped and is the only one worthy of worship, then just literally the chapter title itself is sort of implies that the Trinity is a fastly held belief. And, sure. and yeah, and there's tons of stuff in here. You know, the Father and Son are oneness and power and spirit. And then understanding and reason. The Father is the Son of God. And, like, or, uh, no, of the Father is the Son of God. And, um, but, you know, he, he goes on, though. He says, like, for example, he'll even say a sentence like this. He is the first product of the Father, not as having been brought into existence, for from the beginning, God, who is the eternal mind, had the Logos in himself. Good quote. That's a good yeah, quote. Yeah, like he – so even then, even when he's trying to talk about the um, – how we we talk, we talk, have this language of the eternally begotten, uh, which made its way into the creeds, even that's super, you know, defined actually by him in this, yeah, really early text. So it's – there's a lot of – there's a lot of good stuff in here. And the Holy Spirit, yeah. It's – the the effluence of God flowing from him, you know, and returning back again like a beam of the sun. Um, yeah, it's the the language is all like super, super trinitarian, and I guess I think uses really good imagery for for the Trinity and explains it even pretty well for such an early text. Yeah, when it wasn't uh, completely thought out yet. One. One point that I wanted to bring up alongside this, just because this is a, maybe this is like a personal vendetta or something, a pet peeve of mine or something. But um, at the beginning of the other treatise that we looked at, he says, by the side of every opinion and doctrine, which agrees with the truth of things, there springs up some falsehood. And it does so not because it takes its rise naturally from some fundamental principle or from some peculiar to the matter at hand, but because it is invented on purpose by men who set a value on the spurious seeds 
for its tendency to corrupt the truth. Um, and then he goes on to talk about the, the difficulty um, and actually, and he says that some people just give up and they just doubt and they say it's all ridiculous um, because there are these varying viewpoints. Um, but what I like about that bit from Athenagoras when we're talking about the Trinity, um, if, if you, you know, for me, like I'll read some of the Gnostic texts um, and I'll say, you know, what does this mean? This is baffling. If it's all coming out around the time of Christianity, you know, couldn't it just be true that nobody had a good idea of what the Trinity was and really it was all just a mess? And, you know, maybe maybe Bart Ehrman's right. It's just the power. They just had power and they just said it was right. Um, and so really it's all just a big, uh, you know, quagmire. Um, but I think Athenagoras says, no, if you carefully look through the logic – you know, there's some that springs from the basic principles. Uh, they arise more naturally. And then there are some that don't. And of course, this happens around the truth. Um, and it becomes really, and it can become difficult at times to sort of sift through it. And I think most people would rather just say, well, it's a quagmire. It, the Christians must have made it up and they just doubt. Uh, but Athenagoras is saying, you know, if you proceed ca- carefully um, and with a clear mind, there is a truth of the matter. Yeah. And I know we brought this up before, but whenever I think about Bart Ehrman, and we've mentioned Bart Ehrman a lot on this show for our listeners, you know, he's, you know, just a contemporary scholar who really brings, raises a lot of questions. Uh, he's kind of skeptical of entrenched Christian perspectives, and he brings a lot of arguments against them. Some of them, I think, are really interesting and and you know, things that we should think through and some of them maybe less so. But one thing I don't quite understand about scholars like Bart Ehrman is this insistence on ascribing power to these early church fathers. Because again, and I know we've said this before, but the early church fathers were not in any relevant sense in power. They were a persecuted minority. Um, There was not an entrenched power structure in the church the way there would be after the rise of Constantine. Mm -hmm. Um, They were the oppressed minority, a a, a vast minority. Um, And although there certainly was a hierarchy, that hierarchy that is within the church of bishops and priests that we've talked about, that hierarchy had no real political power um, in a strict sense at all. I mean, you know, they had no way of asserting their will. They had no... um, tools of justice, so to speak, at their lying at their fingertips. I think the best the best uh, accusation you could make against you know the early church would be something like, well the most educated were the theologians and the most educated end up writing theology. But to that I just go, well good. That's good. <laughs> I mean like great. I'm glad. And that kind of just goes along with what, I mean, just Chad just said. I mean, he's just saying that, you know, you know, Athenagoras is a smart dude, basically. And he's just going, look, this just follows. This follows from what, you know, are basic tenets of our faith. And so it's not, and that's good. I mean, it's good that that's, that's who ended up doing the theology. It's good that uh, this, he was educated to this extent. So it's, I think, yeah, you're right. That, I mean, that would be the, your only I think, you know, as far as when you're talking about power, were they powerful? Yeah, they were more powerful in terms of they were better educated. Yeah. But uh, you're right. They were, like, you weren't treated the same as any other citizen at the time. Yeah. 
and as we see in this letter. And so it's, I don't know. I see, I see what you're saying, but yeah. yeah. And another, and another bit, I think mine says chapter 11. I think I might've just misread a, a title or something, but um, so you, it may be the same for you, but it said is uh, chapter 11, but among us, you will find uneducated persons and artisans and old women who, if they are unable in words to prove the benefit of our doctrine, yet by their deeds exhibit the benefit arising from their persuasion of the truth. They do not rehearse speeches, but exhibit good works. When struck, they do not strike again. When robbed, they do not go to law. They give to those that ask of them and love their neighbors as themselves. Beautiful. Yeah, great. It's awesome. I, I, You know, that's one thing that I wish that maybe in our world of political chaos that we uh, we exist in, I, I kind of wish that there was more of that being the voice of Christianity in America, right? I mean, a lot of people are contributing their ideas and making their voice known on social media, and I don't know that it's always helpful in the way that they do it. And I'm not saying there isn't an avenue for it. I'm not telling people to stop tweeting or posting on Facebook, but I would say this, that, I definitely see statements being made all the time that I just can't imagine as being helpful. Whereas what he says here is so awesome. There are amongst us the uneducated. That does not mean that they that those uneducated do not have a voice in, in the world. Those are actually some of the most effective in bringing the message. Why? Because they are able to, to prove the benefit of our doctrines by their deeds, right? To exhibit the benefit arising from their persuasion of its truth. You know, to, you know, people being convicted of the truth of the gospel and walking out and showing it, putting it on display, it is the most effective tool uh, that we have. Way more so than engaging in a debate and winning an argument. Way more so than picketing at the right, whatever political thing we want to, you know, do. It is the testimony that you undoubtedly have of this first century church. I have something I'd like to bring up, just kind of something to maybe throw around briefly. It's in my chapter 14, the inconsistency of those who accuse Christians. I kind of referenced this a moment ago, but I found it online here. As I told everybody, I didn't have my text, so I'm kind of just trying to feel through this. Um, But in this, as I said, I referenced, he points out that – the very men who charge us with atheism for not admitting the same gods that they acknowledge, because that's what he's saying. He's saying yeah. the, the Romans who are accusing us of being atheists, they, they can't be because we don't believe in a god. So they're charging us for not believing in the gods that they follow. And he says, but they don't agree amongst themselves concerning the gods. The Athenians have set up the gods Celius and Metanira, the Lacedaemonians, Menelaus. They offer sacrifices and hold festivals to him. He goes through and gives a whole list of the different gods who are worshipped. Ilium worship Hector, the the Caeans worship Aristeus, um, just as Zeus and Apollo. He he lists it, he continues and goes on. Or yeah, he even says the men of Ilium cannot endure the very sound of his name, talking about Menelaus. Yeah, 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 yeah. They they can't even, yeah, that's true. Yeah, because those are characters, of course, from the Iliad, and and Menelaus is a Greek hero, and Hector is a, is a, uh, a Trojan hero. So basically, he says, time would fail me to enumerate the whole, meaning I could never... I, I could never list all the gods that you guys allow. He says, why do they then bring the charge against us of not agreeing with them? Look at the practices prevailing amongst the Egyptians. Oh, and then he goes on and kind of talks about some Egyptians that he thinks are, or some Egyptian practices that he disagrees with. But 
here's the point I want to bring up. And I'm trying to think of how to phrase this properly. But this does seem to be something which I think, I, I have to admit, doesn't make a lot of sense to me. And I, I want to be careful how I frame this. Because obviously we have all read on Facebook, on Twitter, Reddit, you name it, on the news, <clears throat> Christians kind of creating a story or a narrative about their existence in America as if they're like persecuted or, you know, whatever. And I think rightly so, people who are opposed to Christianity find fault with that, right? I mean, I, I can think of an episode of uh, Bill Maher on uh, his talk show where he goes through and he starts explaining all the people in positions of power who are professing Christians in America and, you know, all the benefits of Christians. I think they're absolutely right. I don't like seeing kind of a, a persecution complex amongst believers or any of those kinds of things. In America, we've got it good, right? We've got it great. Um, but what I do want to say, and this is something that I think is odd, it does seem to me that, and I don't take this in a, like a, a bad way. It doesn't hurt my feelings. I don't feel like people are out to get me or against me. I feel like people in general are not willing to listen to a Christian perspective on things or not all people, but a lot of people. Like, I feel like that's a cultural thing. I feel like they're less willing to listen. And let me just kind of give you an example of this. Um, I was listening to an inter- it was a kind of a famous uh, podcast interview between Mark Marin and Louis CK uh, yesterday. Now let me just say this. I love Louis CK. Like, the amount of admiration I have for him, for his insights, his wisdom, I'm a huge fan. By the way, if you're out there that does not, don't think that is a blanket, go ahead and listen to him. Some of you might actually find his stuff a little offensive. But I, I do find him to be super insightful and intelligent and thoughtful and all of these things. So, so I don't mean this as an attack on him by any means. But as they're talking in their conversation, Louis C.K. points out, that in the Middle Ages, he calls them the Dark Ages, the Christians destroyed all of the works of art in Europe, uh, went through, and he, he specifically mentions the destruction of the Library at Alexandria. And then he says, and it was the Muslims who preserved the great art. Uh, they were the ones who preserved the enlightenment and the light and all of that, whereas the Christians destroyed it all. Now, here's what I would say to that. It's, first of all, it's not really rooted in a, a real knowledge of what the Middle Ages is like. First, there were a lot of super, super intelligent Muslim philosophers who contributed so much to our learning. I mean, there were absolutely, he, he's right on that point in the sense that there was an enormous amount of preservation. People like Averroes and Avicenna were incredible philosophers who preserved the works of Plato in a time when they weren't being read. But you had Christian philosophers who did the same at different eras and in different places. Thomas Aquinas, William of Ockham, John Dunn Scotus, right? I mean, you've got these important Christian philosophers doing the same. And yes, you had monks who went into libraries and burned them down and who destroyed old temples, monuments of great art and, and of human heritage. Yes, you had that. But you also had Muslims who did the same. My point being that that you have, this is the complex history of America. It's a complex history of us, or not America, of humanity. It's a complex history of us doing good things and us doing terrible things. And that holds true in Islam. It holds true in Christianity. But what I find is, culturally, there's this kind of sense of 
but you got but but we're not going to accept the christian story we're not going to to look at it a little uh more objectively like saying hey what are they feeling what are they thinking again i'm not trying to put forward a persecution complex here at all mm-hmm. yeah. in any way i just see that a lot and i think on the one hand i can understand it because people are reacting against kind of their upbringing in a sense real oppression that they have felt i understand that maybe the faith of their parents but I do think it's interesting because I think that coming back to Athenagoras, that's what he's saying. He's saying to Marcus Aurelius, look, you guys tolerate all sorts of stuff and are totally good. Why won't you consider what we're saying? Like, why, why are you so against this teaching when our teaching is not obviously any worse than these others? So, sorry, that was a long rant, but that was kind of yeah. thoughts on that. What do you guys think? I don't, yeah, I don't know. I've, I've thought about this a lot personally. I don't know if this is something like that we've kind of been warned about. I think of verses where it speaks of uh, Christians and just in general the message uh, of being like death to some and mm. being offensive to people. Um, I, I don't remember which epistle that's in. It's in some of Second Corinthians. So, okay. So. Yeah, where the, um, the fragrance of... Yeah. Of death to the dying and we're the fragrance of life to those who are alive. Yeah, it's, uh, I don't know. Sometimes I think of verses like that when when I think of this weird intolerance. Uh, and then it, then there's the other side of me, though, that thinks, well, also, though, in medieval Europe, it seemed like they probably, that was all that was, uh, that was clearly all that was respected. And that's all that was cared about was uh, Christian history and Christianity and and that maybe this is just a reaction to, in a real more, in a less uh, theologically, like, cool way, but just in a more practical way, maybe it is just a reaction to the fact that, I mean, you know, at least since the 1200s, maybe, just European and uh, now kind of American culture has just been dominated by mm-hmm. Christianity. I don't know. I mean, the Enlightenment obviously happened, but yeah. uh, so... So, I mean, definitely stuff shifted there. Um, But, yeah, I mean, for the most part, maybe that's why, just because the Anglo-American realm and the European realm was so Mm. dominated by Christianity. I don't know. Yeah. But I know what you mean. I know what you mean. It's normal for people to say, this is what I grew up with. I don't want that. That was oppressive in my life or something. Yeah. I think that's totally makes sense. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I wanted the – so, you know, some interesting – differences between, again, draw, I mean, I've been drawing a lot of comparison between Justin and, and Athenagoras or Athenagoras, just uh, mostly because uh, the the preponderance of his evidence, as it were, comes, as Tom said, uh, from the Greco, from, well, mostly Greek writings. Actually, I'll say only Greek writings, not Greco-Roman writings, only Greek writings. Uh, Herodotus, your, uh, uh, let's see, Euripides, lots of Homer, um, I mean, it's sort of a fascin- fascinating panoply of, of basically the uh, Greek canon of literature. One bit that I liked sort of – it was interesting at chapter 20 I'm thinking of here, some of the ways in which uh, the gods are depicted and some of their stories. And he says, how then, I ask, can we approach them as suppliants um, when they are ugly to behold, he says at the end. And – I think in some ways he's talking about their physical descriptions, but I also take it to be just a broader sense 
of the way uh, that they act. Um, and he goes through a, a whole different thing about their loves and their desires. Um, I bring it up to say, I, I often find that what Christians are up to, I think actually Irenaeus is up to a similar thing when they go through the Gnostic heresies. Part of their contention is, look at the story that they're telling. Now look at the story that, that we're telling as Christians. I mean, do you really want, uh, do you really think that, uh, that that's a more beautiful story? Uh, do you really think that, uh, that that's going to create people who act you know, justly? Um, do you really see that people who follow this way of thought really make the kind of citizens that you want, Marcus Aurelius? Um, and I also think, go ahead. I was going to say, I can't remember the name of the philosopher right now, but this is reminding me of uh, one of the, I believe it was a pre-Socratic philosopher actually talked about how they hated how the gods acted and thought, you know, these aren't God, like these aren't the gods. And, and they, uh, they criticized Homer. I mean, maybe it's not pre-Socratic, maybe it's after Socrates, but there, there were some early pagan philosophers who didn't even like the way Homer portrayed the gods, for example, and said, you know, these these aren't gods. At least, if, if this is what the gods are, then these aren't the ones I worship. Because, yeah, their manner of behavior is insane. Like, and they do horrible things. So, yeah. So the the I mean, I wanted to make a broader point on the the resurrection bit because um, he does some really interesting things. Um, for what I think he is sort of setting up a, a sort of philosophical theological school. Um, he talks about first principles, um, but some of that, some of that's more about like what I'm, I'm trying to write a paper on the first principles of Irenaeus so that he can come up with a way to um, actually make arguments. And he says, in order for an argument to work, you have to have a, you have to have a, uh, some first principles agreed upon. Otherwise you end up in um, circularity. Well, you guys can do the the resurrection next time. Right? You want to do the resurrection? Yeah. I was going to ask that because there was stuff I really liked from yeah, the resurrection. Yeah. I mean, there's uh, no reason to just throw that out, I don't think. Thanks for listening this week to A History of Christian Theology as we looked at Athenagoras. Next week, we will return to Athenagoras with his second work on the resurrection as well as Theophilus to Autolycus. Um, that will only be with Trevor and I as Tom had been in Europe when we recorded that episode. Thanks for listening.